And I mean, like, everyone's trying to tell me their issues, and I'm like, bitch, can you just cue up my drums? Welcome back to Rebel Girls Book Club. I'm Harmony. And I'm Maggie, and we're here to take you on an intersectional feminist approach to books from all over the spectrum. Bestsellers, we've got you covered. That one book from English class you hated while you read it but you can't forget, we've got that too. Comic books, nonfiction, it's all right here. So grab your tea, grab your blanket, and let's get rebellious talking about your new favorite reads. Hello! Welcome to Rebel Girls Book Club. I'm Hello! Maggie. I'm Maggie. Um, I have mold cider right now, or mold wine, and it's delicious. And um, I will try not to get Maggie level episode three loopy, but you know, if it happens, yeah. it happens. <laughs> it will help with our blooper reel. It will be more even then. What is our relationship with Little Woman, respectively? Oh, by the way, we're reading Little Woman, chapters 1 through 15. It's very exciting. I would say that my relationship with Little Woman is kind of weird, especially now that I have embarked on the journey of rereading it as an adult. Because I remember the story as a child very fondly, and I really remember liking it the first time I read it when I was a kid. And now as an adult, I'm looking back on it, and I can see why I enjoyed it so much as a kid. Like, it's very clear to me. But, like, my enjoyment of it is, I would say, lesser as an adult. So I feel Mm -hmm. like it's complicated my relationship now with a book that I had remembered with a lot of nostalgia. What about you? When I was a kid, I think I started reading it. And I think I got three chapters in every time (laughs) and then like was not, it just wasn't for me. Well, yeah, I guess I I checked in with my mother. So I remember my grandmother really loving it. Uh, She really loved the character of Joe because my grandmother, who for those who don't know me, like lived with me from the time I was eight to 14. Uh, And so we were very close. She really liked Little Woman and she liked the character Joe because she's a writer and Joe was a writer. And I guess my grandmother used to be a tomboy back in the day. And so I like very much associated this idyllicness with it, even though it wasn't something I myself could get through. I checked in with my mom because I had thought that she had really loved this book, but apparently she had similar reactions to what I did. She liked it and she read it apparently when she was pregnant with my little brother in Vermont in isolation and like liked the idyllicness, but it also wasn't, it didn't resonate completely with her. And I think that's kind of how I feel because I, I actually made Maggie do this uh, episode. I strongholded her into it because- (laughs) because I just audiobooked it and it was really great and a great experience and I very much enjoyed it but there were a lot of things that I was confused about going back and and hearing this story for the first time all the way through because Little Woman is hailed by a lot of women as being this really great story that gave their lives a lot of meaning and I think that there are a lot of problematic moral parts of it for me. You sound like you have more problems with the writing itself, though. No, I mean, I agree with you that there's like a lot of problematic messages in it, especially I think about class, but also Mm -hmm. just like about the role of women in society as well. But yes, I also had problems with the writing of it. Although listening to this and listening to both you and I talk about it, I think it also touches on another question that I've been thinking about that I don't know if I've written down, but I know that you and I have talked about a little bit in like our other conversations about the book which is I think sometimes it can be hard as an adult reader to not to criticize but like it's hard to review books that are 
aimed for children because they're not necessarily I think that it's yeah. totally fine to take issue with the morals of the story and everything because like that's clearly what's supposed to be imparted with the young reader but at the same time like little woman isn't necessarily mm-hmm. meant to resonate on that level with a reader of either of our ages you know so that's not necessarily I guess a yeah. criticism of the book to say that it didn't resonate with either of us as an adult reader because like it's not meant for us and for our age group and things like that But I do think there are certain children's books that do resonate with adult readers. Like, I used to, um, even though I'm a huge Harry Potter fan, poo-poo all over Harry Potter. And this last year, actually, I started revisiting the series for the first time, like, actually reading it all the way through. And it was a lot better than I thought it was. I mean, there's that. There's the Chronicles of Narnia. Like, I do think that there are books that should hold up for any age genre, even if they're geared towards children. I agree. I just don't necessarily think that a book has less merit for a certain age group if it doesn't hold up for all age groups, if that makes sense. That does. And I think that in a lot of cases, books or series like Harry Potter or the Chronicles of Narnia tend to be kind of the exception rather than the rule, you know? Yeah, I agree. I just thought that this would also be an exception because... It's such a famous book. And um, part of the reason we're doing this book is because they're making a movie about it in just a short few weeks. Yeah, again. But this one is directed by Greta Gerwig, who did Lady Bird. And so it seems, from the advertisements that I have seen at this point when we're recording, it seems like it's going to focus on some different themes that are touched upon in this book, but don't ultimately win out, if that makes sense. I don't want to get too spoilery. Let's talk about, so we're reading chapters 1 through 15. What happens in this portion, Mags? It's actually kind of hard to explain because the first 15 chapters in a lot of ways read almost like individual short stories or vignettes that are woven together about the same family. But essentially the overarching plot, what we know about what's going to sort of influence the rest of the story is that we are following four young girls ranging from like... 12-ish, I think, is how old Amy yeah. is, to like 16, 17, um, which is how old Meg is, the oldest girl, mm-hmm. and their mother. They have semi-recently come upon some pretty hard financial times and are suddenly being thrust into a lower kind of financial class than they are used to being in. And their father has gone to fight in the, not to fight in the civil war. He's gone as a champlain. I don't know if I'm saying that word right, but he's essentially gone as like a priest or a father or a reverend to help support the soldiers in the union army. He's meant to be gone for a year. We start this book at the very beginning of that year at Christmas time. And at chapter 15, we get almost a year later when at the end of this section, we find out that he has been gravely injured and their mother has to kind of leave and go away to help take care of him, leaving the four girls alone. But really the bulk of these 15 chapters is set up so that you kind of get to know each girl individually as they are becoming quote unquote little women and find out more of their personalities and thoughts and their relationships with each other, and also with the boy next door named Lori. Yes, and his grumpy grandfather. And his grumpy grandfather, who's very important. Yeah, and they're rich. Lori and the boy next door are rich. Yeah. Yeah, that was a great summary. Talked a little bit about their mother, and I wanted to ask what your opinions of her are, because she is kind of a minor character in that we don't see her speak a lot. But she plays such a big, important role within the girls' lives. And they're all kind of like 
I mean, they're not mo- they're not all modeling themselves to be her, but they're kind of like she is their ideal for for womanhood, I guess. Yeah, I would agree with that. I think that she's painted to be at the beginning. She's just kind of painted to be a saint, right? Mm-hmm. I think that something interesting about the mother is that as you go through all fifteen chapters, and like we focus, you know, a couple chapters each on each child, we see individual pieces of what we know of her personality kind of passed directly on to each kid. So, like, I think the best and easiest example of that would be with Joe. Mm. Joe has a really bad temper, and she has trouble controlling herself, and we find throughout the book that this is something that her mother has also struggled with and like really identifies with Joe as she's trying to kind of keep herself sort of under control as she deals with her temper and her temper is pretty bad in one of the chapters Joe is so angry at her youngest sister Amy that Amy almost gets seriously injured because of Joe's like just not wanting to deal with her essentially which we can get into more later but we see these kind of one-to-one correlations i think between different personality traits between the mother and each child so i think that because of that each child sees themselves reflected in their mother and that's why they're all kind of like striving to sort of it's not even like they're striving to be like her it's like they're striving to be worthy of how good she is and her love yeah and her love for sure Yeah, I think that's definitely, I think that's a good analysis of the central themes within this book. Let's get into each daughter and their personalities, because at the beginning, we get a very broad but distinct picture of each one. So we have Meg, who is the oldest, she's 17, and she's kind of like this prim and proper little lady. And that's how we're introduced to her. Actually, I wonder if maybe we can read it. As young readers like to know how people look, we will take this moment to give them a little sketch of the four sisters who sat knitting away in the twilight while the December snow fell quietly without and the fire crackled cheerfully within. It was a comfortable old room, though the carpet was faded and the furniture very plain, for a good picture or two hung on the walls, books filled the recesses, chrysanthemums, and Christmas roses bloomed in the windows and a pleasant atmosphere of home peace pervaded it. Margaret, the eldest of the four, was 16 and very pretty, being plump and fair with large eyes, plenty of soft brown hair, a sweet mouth, and white hands of which she was rather vain. All right, so let's talk about Margaret first then. (laughs) What do you think about Megan these first 15 chapters? Like, what is your impression of her? I think that Meg represents a couple of things. The first is that Meg is the oldest child. So she remembers Mm. most clearly what life was like before they lost their fortune. And so Meg really struggles with desiring what they have lost. And I think struggles a little bit with their new kind of place in society And she very much, she strikes me as a girl who kind of just wants to like fit in, you know, she wants to fit in with her friends. She wants to fit in with the boys. Like she kind of just wants what she perceives to be a normal life. And I think that in certain ways, she feels like that's been taken away from her, which like makes it seem like I think that she's a bad character. Like, I think that those are all very normal things for a child that like goes through such like a turbulent time. And I think also that Meg is one of the ones who is very 
she's very set on being like quote unquote good but she sometimes struggles with that due to what they kind of allude to in that little passage with like her Mm -hmm. vanity and things like that she can be kind of self-centered i guess is what i'm trying to say but like ultimately has a good heart but like if we're talking about her caricature she's definitely just the girl who is trying her hardest to fit in i get that and to be fair i think all of the girls other than beth are kind of self-centered. I think it's hard with this story because I do think that morality is so is so important to it. And the narrator will talk about these things and talk about them lovingly, but also judgmentally, I, in my view. So, like, I think that the narrator tends to favor Meg for the most part more than at least one of the other characters, which we'll get to. But I do think that, yeah, it's hard because, like, at the end of the day, she is, like, a 16, 17-year-old, so. Yeah. I think I think you're right, though, that the morality aspect of this is one of the difficult aspects because there's – essentially, the, the narrator ends up praising certain parts of all of the girls' personalities and kind of, like, disparaging against others to show what different types of women should be. I guess for the time, it was kind of bold to show that there can be multiple types, quote unquote, of women in society and that everyone has a place. But then there still is, I agree with you, that very judgmental aspect. So yeah, do you think Meg would be the most socially acceptable? No, I don't necessarily think so. Every single girl except for Joe really would probably be considered to be socially acceptable at the time. And even Joe, like, I'm I'm, I'm thinking about this time period. This was, in a lot of ways, right around the Civil War, a time where women were able to kind of take up more mantle in society and kind of change their role a little bit, as I think tends to happen throughout history when essentially war comes and the men go away, like women take on different roles in society. So like, I don't necessarily think so. I think that Meg would probably fit in best with the upper echelons of society, which she's trying so hard to like, stay within yeah but i don't think that any of the four girls would necessarily be considered outcasts or or pariahs or anything by any means even even if they're unique okay all right let's talk about joe i'm gonna read the passage if that's okay unless you want to Fifteen-year-old Joe was very tall, thin, and brown, and reminded one of a colt, for she never seemed to know what to do with her long limbs, which were very much in her way. She had a decided mouth, a comical nose, and sharp gray eyes, which appeared to see everything, and were by turns fierce, funny, or thoughtful. Her long, thick hair was her one beauty, but it was usually bundled into a net to be out of her way. Round shoulders had Joe big hands and feet, a flyaway look to her clothes, and the uncomfortable appearance of a girl who was rapidly shooting up into a woman and didn't like it. (laughs) So what were your thoughts about Jo as a character within these first 15 chapters? Because I think her character arc remains kind of consistent, like who she is as a human in these first 15. I really like Jo, and I think that's part of the point of the story is that you're supposed to like Joe. I I don't know. I guess personally, like I have, I guess I fall into the trap of what the narrator sets up, right? Because about all the girls, there are things I like about them and there are things that I dislike about them, right? Yeah, I can definitely see that. I also think, yeah, I think you're right. I think in trying to make herself different and not wanting to fall into the same narrative that's like set before her not wanting to be a wife and not wanting to be just her mother she 
can be a little bit harsh towards certain life choices. Yeah, and she's also very unforgiving for a while there. Like, her temper is a huge part of her character, and I think that's really important. And I think that something I appreciate about this book is that it shows angry women, and it shows women who are partially angry because of the circumstances that, like, life and society have set before them as obstacles. But then at the same time, Joe makes some decisions when she's angry where you're just like, holy shit, what is going on here? Well, I also think, too, like, I think every character, to her own extent, has a moment in which they are, quote unquote, angry. But, like, Joe is the only one who's really allowed to feel that emotion. Like, the other girls who are a little bit more within the bounds of society, they they have pettiness or, like, they do something foolish. And that's really, that's the extent, I would say, of their their anger. Like, it's a very, like typical feminine. I I think I disagree with that in two specific cases, but I think that Meg is very angry at life in the chapter where she finds out what her friends kind of really thinks about her and like overhears them. That he was like, it read as being angry and upset and hurt. And it didn't seem petty to me, I guess, because her friends, her friends were genuinely being quite hurtful and very rude And, like, that whole scene was embroiled in the anger that she feels about, like, their, like, new station in society. And the other scene where I think I can see a little bit more where you're coming from but still strikes me that way is the one with Amy in school and getting punished. That one definitely had a little bit more to do with, like, being foolish, like, Amy made a mistake. But the anger that she feels at her own treatment and her, like, corporal punishment, I think, is slightly separate from that. Yeah, okay. So I think my my thing with Meg was that, like, Meg didn't do anything big about it, though. Like, she didn't necessarily get back at those girls. Amy, however, does. Like, Amy goes out and she's like, she feels this injustice and she tells her parents and her mom doesn't make her go back to school. So, yeah, I guess I was wrong. You're right. Let's talk a little bit about Beth, unless you want to talk more about Joe. No, that's fine with me. It's your turn to read about Beth, though. Elizabeth, or Beth, as everyone called her, was a rosy, smooth-haired, bright-eyed girl of 13 with a shy manner, a timid voice, and a peaceful expression, which was seldom disturbed. Her father called her Little Tranquility, and the name suited her excellently for she seemed to live in a happy world of her own, only venturing out to meet the few whom she trusted and loved. What are your thoughts on Beth? Oh, I don't know. I love Beth, because you're supposed to love Beth. Beth is really the one character in this book who, like, doesn't have any sort of negative qualities, except for the fact that she's, like, very shy and very, very timid. But, like, that's not seen as being a negative quality, except for the fact that her sisters worry about her because of it, and her mother worries about her because of it. I love Beth, too. One of the things that I noticed that comes up later that, of course, I didn't write uh, page numbers for (laughs) is that she is, she's talked about as being housewifely a lot, though. And I thought that was really interesting, considering that Beth, in a lot of ways, is, like, the moral center of the four girls. 
Yeah, I thought that was really interesting, too. She's described numerous times as being one of the only one of the girls who, like, actually seems to like domestic chores. She likes to sew, even though she's not very good at it, like kids are. And she likes to be part of kind of the more household stuff. She likes to clean. She likes to make things very, like, comfortable and nice for people. And the other thing that bothers me about Beth is not an indictment on Beth herself, but bothers me just about the way the author has her talk about herself that she constantly calls herself stupid all the time beth refers to herself like as being stupid or like oh i can't do this or i can't do that that like she was constantly making herself smaller and putting herself down especially when like everyone in the book adores her she is the one character in the book that like no one has any conflict with (laughs) but do you think that's why it's because she's constantly making herself small i mean yeah like that's super part of it I think that the question here, which I don't think that the book answers, but that I think of as a modern reader, is like, is this smallness, like, is this making herself small sort of a defense mechanism? Like, does she feel like she has to do it? Or is, as a child, is she genuinely just, like, shy and timid and, like, wants to help people, you know? Because, like, I think they're interconnected but ultimately separate things. Because I think that acting that way because you feel like you have to be small is separate from just having a personality that, like, kind of leans into that nature, if that makes sense. But I don't think the book answers that. No, I agree. What I, as a modern reader, hearing it, thought about Beth was that it reminded me a little bit of when you and I were in college and both of us were pretty vocal in college and like participated in class discussions, but I came across a lot of people who did not like who, who did have social anxiety and couldn't participate in class discussions. Like it didn't come easily to them. It was a very scary thing. And some professors, the professors who maybe weren't so great professors, like wouldn't value their opinions then because just because like they wouldn't speak up for themselves. And to me, that's who Beth seemed as a character. Like, I thought she was, because she is, she is homeschooled. So I thought that perhaps she thinks that she's stupid because, like, maybe in school she wasn't able to get the the attention she deserved from the teacher because she didn't speak up and things like that. So I think that, yeah, she's just, like, a very old-timey, introverted character. And I hope that kids today don't have to deal with that. I think that they're stupid just because they live in their heads. Yeah, for sure. It's funny that you describe me like that. I was only outspoken in classes that I was with you. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, that's really funny. I was, yeah, it depended on the subject. Yeah, no, I, I would agree with that analysis of Beth. Something I really enjoy about her, though, in which I forgot about was how much she loved and was good at music and playing the piano and how like that was one of her great joys in life and I really enjoyed that specifically because I think if she didn't have that she would just seem like this little mouse housewife character who just didn't have very much substance to her but I enjoyed watching her I enjoyed watching her play the piano and deepen that love. And I also really enjoyed watching her relationship grow with the grandfather. Yeah, Mr. Lawrence, who was just such a crotchety old man and he terrified her. And like they ended up making this really like beautiful friendship, which sounds weird when you're talking about a kid and an older man. But like it wasn't I don't know. I didn't find it like creepy or off putting in this book. Like it was a very, very sweet. sweet. Yeah, 
I agree. That reminded me of you, actually, when I heard that part. I was like, oh, this seems like a little Maggie. <laughs> she was very much a little Maggie. <laughs> I, 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 I think I'm less timid and shy now as an adult, but that's still definitely like, I don't know. There's lots of parts of Beth that are still, I think, at the core of like who I am. I think when I was young, my grandmother may have may have thought that I was very Beth-like because I was also a very quiet kid, like really quiet, like would not talk to people for months at a time. But I always kind of bristled that off because I think I thought of myself as a much more fiery person. And it was never a tomboy like Joe. But yeah, today, today as a kid, as a kid, I don't think I would have identified with any of them. But I think we're getting to the character who I do think I identify with today, which is... Amy. Amy. All right, shall I read about her? Amy, though the youngest, was a most important person, in her own opinion at least. A regular snow maiden with blue eyes and yellow hair curling on her shoulders, pale and slender, and always carrying herself like a young lady mindful of her manners. What the characters of the four sisters were, we will leave to be found out. (laughs) I think that in these first 15 chapters, Amy is really hard to like. It was really hard for me to like, especially having read this in part through my grandmother's lens, because I don't know if the book itself is kind of like poo-pooing over her in the beginning or... If I was just reading and being like, oh, this is the sort of person, like, my grandmother would not like. Like, this is the sort of child my grandmother would not be cool with. Really? Oh, man, I actually really like Amy. I think that she's definitely precocious. I think that she is one of the two more prickly characters, so to speak. Uh, but I don't, I don't know. I didn't personally find her difficult to like in the first 15 chapters. I did. I do like her though. And I think that, um, it was a journey. It was a journey throughout the book. And then I like got to look back and be like, oh, Amy's just like being the baby. Amy's just the baby. And therefore being the baby. (laughs) Yes, very much so. I agree with that. What did you think about her though? Just that she was precocious and prickly? Yeah, I would say so. I don't know how to describe what I thought about her, really, because I feel like every time I read one of her chapters, I had, like, a very indulgent smile on my face and was just, like, shaking my head. I really appreciated the fact that Alcott did a really great job describing, like, the different dynamics that happens between siblings. The characters have their own personality caricatures, but I think that they also fall in a lot of ways into, like, what happens when you have siblings. Like, the oldest Mm -hmm. sibling is like this, and then the middle ones are like this, and then the youngest one is like this. I think I really liked Amy because she reminds me of my youngest sister, who is the same age of Amy uh, at the moment. I am 12 years old than she is so there's like a big age gap between us so like I I think that it just I think she just did a really good job of what it means to be the baby in a household where like your siblings are a lot older than you and more adult I think sometimes the dislikable parts of Amy potentially come from the fact that she feels like she needs to prove herself like with the words the mispronouncing and misuse of the words all the time oh my god it's so cute but it's so typical of a youngest sibling too you know like she wants to be at the table with the adults at the adult level. Yeah. Yeah, it's very adorable. I love Amy. I think that she's a great little character with a very sharp little mind. 
we've been talking a lot about caricatures. Do you believe that they're like real people or do you believe that they're caricatures? I think they grow into being more individual characters, but I would say in the first probably like six to eight chapters of the book, they seem very typified to me. And then by the end of the, like this first section, that's when you start kind of seeing for me, at least a little bit more nuance in all of them. And I think that the one I saw some of the most growth in, in this part was actually Beth. And it was slow growth, but it came, it really, like I was saying earlier, it came so much from that friendship she was able to make with Lori and with Mr. Lawrence. And like at the end, I think in chapter 14, all of the girls go on a picnic with, or maybe 13, all of the girls go on a picnic with Lori and some of his like other friends from school. And Beth is like really scared of the boys initially. And is like, I don't want to talk to them. Like keep me away. And like, as she gets to know them a little bit, just over that short period of time, she becomes a little bit more bold and she makes friends with them. And like, even just that little move is something Beth at the very beginning of the book would not have thought to do. Yeah, I agree. Do you want to talk about Lori before we move on to like the other plot points? Because we've just talked about all four girls. Yeah, sure. What do you think about Lori? I think in these first initial 15 chapters, he just seems like a really sweet little boy. During this point, he does he does say that he likes Joe. And I read that and I was like, oh my god, he likes Joe! This is so cute! They're gonna end up together! They're so adorable! Yeah, I just, he's very sweet. He's sweet to the mom. He, for those who maybe it's been a while since they've read Little Woman, uh, Lori ends up becoming kind of a part of their family. And towards the, the end of the chapter that we're reading right now, when we find out that the dad is injured and the mom has to go, like Lori's in the room with them and is a part of the whole bustle of things that go on. Like he's there assisting them. Like he is one. Yeah, he takes action. Yeah, he essentially becomes like one of her sons, even though he's got his grandfather who he lives with and is like the next door neighbor joe meets him well joe joe observes him before she actually meets him and thinks that he's a lonely boy and so goes out of her way to like talk to him what do you think about joe's initial impression of lori i guess is that weird for a girl who's like 15 to be like oh this is a lonely i just don't know if i would be like as a 15 year old girl it's my responsibility to go, like, make sure that this boy is okay and, like, not sick anymore. And Well, to be fair, they meet before that point. They meet in a ball that Meg drags Joe to, or, like, a dance that Meg drags Joe to, and Joe ends up hiding behind curtains and she stumbles upon Lori there. That's when they first meet. She's observed him before that point. But that's when they first meet. And it's after that and after they've already kind of become friends that she notices him even more in the window and notices that she that he's sick. So, like, yeah, I could kind of see that, right? Like, he was really kind to both her and Meg at the ball. And, like, he, right off the bat, like, did not mind the fact that Joe was, God, I hate this phrase, but I think in this place it's apropos, like, not like the other girls, so to speak. <laughs> At the very least, not like the other girls who were at that dance with Meg. They formed a relatively quick connection there. So yeah, I don't necessarily think that based on that, it's particularly weird. Because it wasn't the first time they met. But I do think that if she had just noticed him and gone over, it would have been a little bit like, ah! But like that's why she hadn't done it before, right? Because she had noticed him prior to that. 
and she had kind of wanted to introduce herself, but everyone around her was kind of like, nah, we probably shouldn't do that. And it was only after actually meeting for the first time that the friendship blossomed. No, 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 I know. But like when she's noticing him before, she thinks that he's a lonely boy. And then after their friendship does blossom, like throughout these 15 chapters, we notice her, we notice them growing closer and she becomes his keeper. And I wonder if you think that is weird. And maybe it's because I didn't have a lot of, like you had more male friendships than I did when you were this age. So is that just like kind of a dynamic we end up falling into? I guess so. I mean, I'm trying to, I don't know. I, it did not strike me as being weird. I thought it was weird and also a little bit problematic that she becomes his keeper. I don't think I viewed him as being, I viewed her as being his keeper though. Like maybe a little bit in the, beginning but like by the end of the 15 chapters like he is almost equally as close to all the girls as he is to joe and like she's not in charge of him or telling him what to do or like no but he's the only she is the only one he will listen to and the girls continually say that she's the one who manages Lori. kind of i i really i don't know i kind of didn't get that vibe from it to be honest with you i wish i had pointed out textual evidence because this is such a large chapter that it's hard to find it it's just it's hard to find it but like it's everywhere okay so initially when she's talking to mr lawrence she talks about like what he needs right and mr lawrence kind of like adheres to joe because joe is his keeper now and then it just goes on joe not mr lawrence Lori. no mr lawrence Lori's grandpa he doesn't adhere to joe yes he does she tells him what's right She says that Lori needs to go out more and, like, needs to have more friends. And Mr. Lawrence adheres to that. And it's because he thinks that Joe is his keeper now, is Lori's keeper. Lori is a little mischief boy, and now he's got a little girl to tell him what's what. And I think that can be problematic because girls are supposed to be more, I don't know, more mature than little boys. And they are the same age. And I don't think it's always problematic in this case, but like Joe kind of ends up being a little bit like his, his ball and chain. Yeah. I mean, I can see now that you're saying it, I can see it. I'm just saying like when I read it, that wasn't the vibe that I got from it and it didn't stick out to me, but like, yes, I, I see what you're saying. I think though that there is also, I think that Joe gets a little bit of pleasure from like, bossing him around and managing him and like I think for me that complicates it a little bit because I don't think she feels like she has to do anything especially related to Lori you know like it all kind of comes out of the kindness of her heart and I kind of think that's important because we see Joe in a lot of ways as being I'm going to use the word prickly again, but I think it works here. Like, she, she's kind of argumentative, and she doesn't like to do what she's told. And, like, those are all really good things and the reasons that I like Joe. But I think that sometimes it can make her seem, again, kind of self-centered. And in certain cases, when dealing with her sisters, unkind. And so I really like the fact that we ground a lot of who Joe is in the idea that, like, she is at her heart a kind-hearted person who notices other people and how they're feeling, even if she doesn't always have the emotional maturity herself to, like, think about how others feel if she feels like she's been wrong. No, I agree. I think that's... Yes. Okay. 
but, but like I agree that there are certain elements of their relationship that can be kind of problematic and that like I think that if their relationship at the beginning was written any differently it would be kind of just exclusively a problematic relationship where she's just kind of like in charge of him no yeah I definitely think it's more complicated I just think that that's like a trope that girls should be wary of <laughs> What else do you want to talk about? We have a lot here. It's a lot of ground to cover. <laughs> oh, the boy comments. Do we think Joe, what? I don't know yeah. if he was, like, quite present with the 15 chapters, but, like, throughout this book, I continually question Joe's sexuality. And I think that, like, maybe there's the, some of the wish fulfillment of her being a boy. She talks about one point... Not in these 15... No, maybe it is in these 15 chapters. Like, wishing she could marry Meg. So, oh, she doesn't talk about that in this part. I forgot about that. <laughs> isn't it in the last... Um, like, the second to last chapter? I don't think so. I'm not sure. I If, if it was, I didn't pick up on it. Um, yeah, no, I think it's worth to talk about the Joe and the I wish I were a boy comments. They really stuck out to me. And I think that it also really stuck out to me in um, relation to how she reacts when she cuts her hair so Mm -hmm. that she could raise money. Because I wonder to a certain extent how much... I think that when Joe says, I wish I were a boy, she's not saying she actually wishes she's a boy, right? What she's really saying is, I wish I had the freedom to do whatever I wanted and to study and to learn and to play like all of the boys around me do. And to go to war. And to go to war, yeah, she talks about wanting to be a soldier and stuff and, like, how she wishes she were there with her father and things like that. And I thought it was really interesting also because when she cuts her hair, I mean, in the in the part we just talked about, right, like, where they describe all of them, Joe's quote-unquote only beauty is continually described as being her very, very long hair. And she cuts all of it off and then she like intensely mourns it, you know, and she feels both very sad and to a certain extent kind of silly for mourning her hair. And I thought that it was just like a really interesting scene. Joe is constantly told she's tomboyish all the time. She's described by the narrator as being tomboyish. She's described by her sisters as being tomboyish, like, but Joe never necessarily describes herself as being tomboyish. She says she wishes she were a boy, but, like, she doesn't mean that necessarily in, like, a literal sense. And, like, I thought the part where she cut her hair was almost so bittersweet because it was almost, like, her last defense against all these accusations about being tomboyish and being boyish. When, like, really all she wants is just, like, the freedom to be a fucking author. Yeah. No, I agree. And I think to not have to worry about, like, balls and being pretty and stuff like that. Like, it's not just being an author it's about all these things that her sisters are worrying about or told they have to and which joe gets wrapped up into because meg can't go to all of these places by herself it's not like proper so like if meg didn't want to go i don't think anyone would have forced joe to like it doesn't seem to me like the mother figure would have ever been like oh joe you have to do this you have to do that like her mother is actually pretty supportive i think of all four of the girls and that they have different interests and different pursuits and like tries to nurture those different aspects of her but like joe ends up in especially in these first 15 chapters being 
put in situations where she's not comfortable. She doesn't feel like herself. She'd rather be anywhere else because she wants to support Meg and what Meg is doing. Meg can't go and do these things without her. Joe doesn't have to worry about class as much as Meg and Amy do because Meg and Amy are interested in being a part of society. They're interested in being ladies. They're described as that multiple times. Yeah, but Joe doesn't have to worry about that. And I think where a lot of like the need to be a girl comes from, because that's represented most, I think, and Meg and Amy like comes from this class expectation, like behaving in a certain way because of your class. Yeah, for sure. Do we want to talk about how class plays a role in these first 15 chapters? Yes, because it bothers me so much. Okay, go ahead. As a child, I was not frustrated with Meg at all. As an adult reader, I get so frustrated with Meg. And, like, I understand it as well because I think that, like I was saying at the beginning of the episode, I think if I was 16 and, like, had thought my life was going to go one way and, like, we had, as a family, been on one path and then we lost all of our wealth and had to deal with that, like, I think I would have been upset too. But Meg, more than any of them, has no sense of fucking perspective. Even when they go to the house and they give away their Christmas breakfast and things like that. And she like has kind of a moment where she's like, Oh my gosh, like this is sort of what true poverty looks like. She doesn't actually learn the lesson. She describes the family multiple times as being poor and like kind of impoverished and things like that. And I'm not saying that that's wrong, but like to me, the family seems to be more in like, I mean, the middle class didn't really exist in the 1860s, but, you know, more of a middle class type where, like, they're not worried about starving on Christmas Day. And, like, they do have the money to occasionally get new things. They're upset because they don't have money. Like, they're not going to get Christmas presents at the beginning, which, like, again, children, understandable. But, like, they also have pocket money of their own, even if it's only a little bit. And, like... There's this there's just three very distinct families we follow in this that show kind of three different layers of class stratification because the Lawrences are very, very, very wealthy. And Mr. Lawrence is pretty generous to the March family. And also it's But they won't take anything because they're proud. No, I mean they do take some things like uh Beth accepts that piano and stuff like that. Yeah, but he can't like give charity. Like they're generous, but it has to be in a certain way. Sorry, yeah. continue. Well, I was also going to say, like, his interest, before any of the kids meet each other, the Lawrence's int- Mr. Lawrence's interest in the March family comes because he's impressed by their generosity and giving away their Christmas present to this, to this family who is actually living in poverty. And then you see the Marches, which, again, kind of have lost a lot of their wealth and status, but still have a house over their heads. They have food to eat. You know, the kids have pocket money, so to speak. And then you have the family that you really only see for a couple of instances. They, You only interact with them when they go to give over the Christmas bre- uh, breakfast and they give out presents and things like that. And it it's like a mother and a father living in not very nice conditions with a ton of children. I think the mother's pregnant. And these are the only three instances of like class that we see here. And it's just frustrating for me, I guess it was frustrating with, for me to read about it from the girl's perspectives, because especially with Meg, there's parts of there's sometimes where I just wanted to shake her and be like, 
you have no like the words that you were using do not mean what you think they mean you know because they don't actually equate to what you're going through right now i didn't mind make it all because she is a teenager and like as a teenager who grew up below well when i was a young young teenager i grew up below the poverty line like shit all i wanted was things like ugg boots and an iphone and to fit in with all of the other kids so like i didn't yeah i didn't think that make was wrong for wanting those things and i think throughout the story she chooses like i don't think that that i think even throughout these first 15 chapters she's like looking at whether or not she wants those things or she wants like, it has to be one or the other, like, love and happiness and to be decent. What bothered me about class structure in this book is that, like, from the beginning here, there is a quote. When we first meet the mother, she's described as noble. It's just, like, they're, they used to be rich, and that makes them better, I think, in some instances. Like, there is a dichotomy that exists within poverty, um, that I think I've had a chance because I have actually had the ability to transcend class, like to be in different classes and class isn't the same as it was back then. But like I have been in different classes, like I've been technically homeless, but I've also been in a household making over like six figures. So I've had a chance to see that. But there is like this idea that there are like these trashy poor people, right? Poor people who like don't educate themselves and choose to be or ignorant. And then there's an idea of like the well-educated poor people who are poor simply because of like their lot in life, but they're just good and like they're rich and home and love. And I think that this book really plays into that idea. And it's continually talked about, about like being like they're happier than the rich people because they have a loving family. And that that transcends money and wealth. But they're also like, they're still the good poor people because they used to be rich and because they have like certain opportunities that allow them to be educated and to be like decent and all of these other things that are good according to society. And yeah, I don't know. That was my my problem with this book. Like, they're not quote unquote trashy poor people. And I think that I don't think Alcott goes out of her way to depict anyone in this book as being a trashy poor person. But I do think that like she goes out of her way to hold this family up. And this family also used to be rich, which I think is also linked to goodness here. The mother is described as noble <laughs> and the mother's supposed to be the figurehead of goodness. And I think something that plays into exactly what you're talking about is the fact that they lost all of their money essentially because the father kind of just like gave it away to people who it's implied that he should not have been giving it away to. Some of it was just like general like charity and just sharing but like the real thing was that he ended up wasting his money on people he thought deserved a chance and then like gambled all of his money away yeah and like so it cut like even the way they became like they lost their status is kind of it's like rooted in this idea of like goodness and things like that because like it was a lot of they lost it through charity and kind of the father being a very poor investor in that part which also carries implications that like you should hoard your wealth and 
not be a generous person, you know? Yes. Yeah. Those are my thoughts on class within this. <laughs> what do you think of Hannah's relationship with the family and what, because we're talking about class, like neither of us grew up with maids. I assume you didn't, did you? Okay. So like, I don't know. I don't think that's a very common experience today. And so I don't know what to think about it, but it does make me a little uncomfortable. I think that the relationship between like maid slash servant when it exists today is very, very different than it is in the 1860s. And I think that it's, I think that their relationship with Hannah falls into a trope that also bothers me about class and how it's depicted at this time a lot, where like Hannah is both in certain states situations being considered to be very much part of the family and then in other ways is also considered to still be like very subservient to them and like that depiction of maids in like of servants in general during this time period is like so frustrating to read about as a modern reader i think because i think that even with families in this time who grew up who grow up in like a wealthier class and things like that. I think for the most part, at least like it's a much more professional relationship. This person is coming and doing you a service and you pay them like a real life wage, hopefully. And all of that stuff. Uh, Although obviously that is not true in every single case. And like, this is a gross generalization, but like you, there's very few cases now, I think where you're like bringing somebody into your home to both live with you and be like a companion, but also be somebody who is continually put down as being lesser. And like, that's not exclusive to little woman, right? Like this was literally just the attitude of servants and maids and stuff during this time period. But like weird to read about as a modern reader. It is definitely weird. I wonder, do you think there's like any feminist critique we can make on that? Other than, like, let's pay people who are in domestic service roles a living wage? I don't know. <laughs> yes, for, su- for sure. I think that at this time period, there's... I think there is kind of a feminist critique, because I think that, from what I know, uh, like, the marches don't have a butler, so this is kind of just more conjecture from what I generally know of the time period, but, like... It was maids and women in kind of these female servant roles that were really made to be felt like part of the family in certain times, whereas butlers and kind of more male servants, I don't think were necessarily brought into the confidence of their masters so much. Mm -hmm. Like, and I think that part of that is also sort of also due to the fact that like men at this time period getting dressed for them did not take multiple hours and like it did not take multiple hours of labor to like get somebody ready for the day or things like that like it did with women so like all of the female household members whether they were servants or whether they were like of the family so to speak they were forced into contact a lot more time so like i think that a lot of that is what ends up blurring the lines between like part of the family a friend figure and like being in this more subservient role not to say it makes it right because i don't think it is i think it's a very fucked up kind of dynamic to have with anyone who you're who is in your employ but like i think that because of the societal pressures to look a certain way and act a certain way and be a certain way as kind of like a lady of the house like it forces to a certain extent that dynamic to exist more where it might not necessarily between like the male figures of the house does that make sense It does. It does make sense. That makes a lot of sense. Um, I'm like wondering, it's hard because I don't know very much about this time period, but like I watched Downton Abbey and that's also hard because that's a different culture. Um, Like, I don't know how much butlers were used by Americans and like if 
the roles were different and like from watching Downton Abbey I know that like there was less friendship had but also like the guy did trust his his butler and like the men did get help getting dressed and so that's yeah I don't know so people can direct us on rebelgirlsbookclub at gmail.com if you have knowledge about this subject do you want to talk about we talked about Hannah I all I see is uh Megan Mr. Brooke left I actually, yes, I agree with that. There's one other scene I want to talk to you about a little bit, though, because I think it makes Joe into a more nuanced character. What do we take about the fact that when the girls have that, like, week where they're all free and stuff, and so they decide that they're going to do experiments, yeah, whatever the fuck they want for a week and stuff, and then, like, the their mother and Hannah leaves and, like, shit collapses... I thought that something that was really interesting there was that, like, Joe actually steps into a slightly more domestic role and, like, ends up enjoying parts of it and keeps it up. And I wanted to know what you thought about, like, Joe's relationship with cooking and the experiment and things like that. Is this... I don't remember this very much. Let's see. So I'm on the experiment now. Do you remember, like, around when this would occur? Can we, like, read a passage There's two passages here. So essentially the first thing that happens is that they have to fend for themselves. And Joe decides that she's going to throw like a whole last dinner party, even though she has no idea what she's doing. So she invites Lori and some friends over and she tries to make like pretty much by herself. Like this is a Joe thing. It's like crazy meal. And it turns out to be. I identify with this so hard. Like it's (laughs) terrible. So at the end, all of this happens. Yeah, I I just found some of the reactions. So, so here's the reaction to Joe's meal. Does the current political climate make you want to move to that island in Japan with a bunch of cats? No. Okay, well, you know what I mean, like a beach somewhere, cats optional. (laughs) Well, yeah, without the cats, because the current political climate makes me want to be in the fetal position all day. Check out Feminist Without Mystique. New podcast episodes released every Wednesday. Me wow. Oh, God. (laughs) (laughs) Poor Joe would gladly have gone under the table as one thing after another was tasted and left. While Amy giggled, Meg looked distressed, Miss Crocker pursed her lips, and Laurie talked and laughed with all his might to give a cheerful tone to the festive scene. Joe's one strong point was the fruits, for she had sugared it well and had a pitcher of rich cream to eat with it. Her hot cheeks cooled a trifle, and she drew a long breath as the pretty glass plates went round, and everyone looked graciously at the little rosy islands floating in a sea of cream. Miss Crocker tasted first, made a wry face, and drank some water hastily. Joe, who refused, thinking there might not be enough, for they dwindled sadly after the picking over, glanced at Lori, but he was eating away manfully, though there was a slight pucker about his mouth, and he kept his eye fixed on his plate. Amy, who was fond of the delicate fare, took a heaping spoonful, choked, hid her face in her napkins, and left the table precipitately. "'Oh, what is it?' exclaimed Joe, trembling." Salt instead of sugar and the cream is sour, replied Meg with a tragic gesture. So, like, this is an example of how just, like, fucking badly this goes for her. But at the end, like, 
before this point when she's actually cooking, she's having a lot of fun doing it and like is enjoying herself, even if she's a little bit stressed out. And at the end, when their mother comes home, this is what happens. As she spoke, Mrs. March came and took her place among them, looking as if her holiday had not been much pleasanter than theirs. Are you satisfied with your experiment, girls, or do you want another week of it? She asked as Beth nestled up to her and the rest turned toward her with brightening faces as flowers turned toward the sun. I don't, cried Joe decidedly, nor I, echoed the others. You think, then, that it is better to have a few duties and live a little for others, do you? Lounging and lurking doesn't pay, observed Joe, shaking her head. I'm tired of it and mean to go to work at something right off. Suppose you learn plain cooking. That's a useful accomplishment which no woman should be about, said Mrs. March, laughing inaudibly at the recollection of Joe's dinner party, for she had met Miss Crocker and heard her account of it. So we see that, like, this, it's weird because this is one of the first times where Joe is ascribed to kind of learn something womanly, but at the same time, she had fun while it was actually happening. And throughout the rest of this section, we see that she does learn how to cook and, like, really enjoys it. So it was just interesting to me because, like, her mother ascribes it to her as being, like, something of the womanly arts that she should know. Like with everything that Joe does, she just kind of does it because she enjoys it, you know? Yes. So I have mixed feelings about this because, like, I am Joe in a lot of ways in this situation in that, like, I am just now learning to cook and um, I'm really enjoying it and, like, getting into the quote-unquote womanly arts. And it's a good thing to do. Like, it's a good thing to know how to cook for yourself and how to clean, like, how to keep a clean house and stuff. But we also have this huge history of, like, women being regulated to this to this role. And even today, it's not equal. Like, men don't do an equal amount So, like, I am super glad that Joe enjoys this and can totally see why she would enjoy it. I'm just angry at the implication that, like, maybe she needs to do it for her husband someday. And I'm angry because this book, I think, like, it's not here in the first 15 chapters, but I think that it's foreshadowing. And that's all I'll say. (laughs) No, I think it is there in the first 15 chapters, though, because the more we see in these first 15 chapters, the more we see that when Mrs. March was younger, she was a lot like Joe. And her husband essentially tames her down, which is like really a weird dynamic. But like in the letter she writes to Joe, where she talks about like her temper and things like that, we find that like Mr. March has to help her like control and contain herself. So I think it is heavily implied that like Joe is going to eventually have to take the same path that her mother takes and stuff like that. So like she might as well start learning where she actually enjoys it, you know? Yeah, those are my mixed feelings. I think it's great that, like, well, that she feels happy doing some of this work. And, like, I think that, you know, learning to like housework is never a bad thing. I think that it's good. No, but it's the gendered aspect of it. Yeah, it's the, it's the context and the gendered aspect and the fact that, like, this is what we still do on top of working now and have been regulated to for hundreds and hundreds of years. <laughs> All right, shall we end with Meg and Mr. Brooke then? Yes, let's end. Oh, I think the experiments, though, is also really cool because I think it's, like, really cool parenting style of Mrs. March. If I ever had kids, yeah. That's, like, the way to go. Like, it, was, it was very smart and very cleverly and also compassionately done, I think. where Because, like, it's a lesson, right? To be, like, you are all still children and you need to, like, 
think about how the world actually needs to be. But, like, she let them discover it for themselves. Like, that hard work is important and that, like, that the work that all of them do to take care of the house and home is still, like, real work. Even if, you know, it should be more shared as we've discussed and things like that. But, like, it's it's worthwhile to, like, take care of your space and things like that. Yes, I agree. Okay, let's talk about Megan, Mr. Rip. Do we do we want to read something about Megan, Mr. Brick from these first fifteen? Maybe from the- yeah, I'm trying to find the passage that like I just so like it's foreshadowed in this passages and in like these fifteen chapters essentially that like they're gonna have a romance and like I just wanted to get like your thoughts on that essentially. I like it in these first fifteen chapters, and that's like that's I think it's fine in these first fifteen chapters. I don't know. I don't remember how old Mr. Brick is. He's in, like, his early 20s, I think. Okay, so it's, like, it's kind of weird by today's standards, but back then it probably, like, wasn't as weird, especially because, like, Meg isn't in school. Yeah, that's true. She's, like, done. (laughs) So these first 15 chapters, I think it's fine. I think in later episodes I will have very different opinions about it. What did you think? So I don't, I haven't read the entire book so far I've only read up to the first 15 chapters just because I have kind of been struggling to get through it a little bit so I don't really remember what happens necessarily but I will say I did leave me feeling a little off and I'm even like I'm in the passages right now where like they're together for some of the first time and I really can't put my finger on what I don't like about it it just feels very odd to me I guess and I think Part of the reason it feels odd is just because we don't actually know very much about Mr. Brooke, except for the fact that he's Laurie's tutor and, like, likes to learn and things like that. He and Meg have some sweet banner and stuff, but, like, I don't know. It left me feeling a little bit unsettled. So, like, maybe this is, like, 10-year-old Maggie being, like, we don't like what happens at the end. But, like, I don't know. I it I don't want to say go just so far to say it bothered me, but, like... I felt like there was, like, prickles on the back of my neck where I was like, I don't think this is going to go where I actually want it to go, you know? Okay, all right. Do you do you have a passage that you want to read? Because I'm curious to see... Yeah, I just, I want the text so that maybe I can, like, help read into that a little. I don't think I do, though, because I'm, like, reading the chapter right now where they're, like, together for the first time. And all they're doing is, like reading poetry to each other with a chaperone which is kind of cute (laughs) it is kind of cute like i really i don't know what it is like i can't even find one now that's like you know what i think it was for me i think it was that a all of this stuff where she meets mr brooke comes off a chapter where meg is feeling very vulnerable about her position in society and her position with boys and like what that means and I don't think that Mr. Brooke comes off as being predatory by any means in these 15 chapters but like I think for me I just worry about her rushing into things because she comes off of this chapter and meets him in a place where she's like very emotionally vulnerable because like she's hurt by how people perceive her and things like that that's fair although I think on that camping trip and you can correct me if I'm wrong but like there are other boys kind of Meg's age or like of that same age range that are vying for her attention and she just wants to talk to Mr. Brooke even though Mr. Brooke is just the tutor like they're rich boys vying for her attention 
Yes, but it's because she meets them in an earlier chapter and she doesn't like them because she thinks they're rowdy and takes like liberties. So like Mr. Brooke in this case, I think is different um, than that. So like, yes, definitely shows a little bit of like, uh, like being all there, but I I don't know. I think still, I I don't know. I think I just, I'm not saying it's what's going to happen. I'm not, I think that's just for me where that like prickly feeling comes from where I'm like, I don't know how I feel about this. I understand. I'm excited to delve into the next 15 chapters with you and get more into Mr. Brooke. Because I have opinions. I just don't have them yet. <laughs> yeah, I get you. I get you. I'm excited to have more opinions uh, moving forward. Because the other thing I think about the next two arcs that we're going to do is... um these first 15 chapters read very much like short stories, like I was saying, that are all woven together. But like there becomes more of a structured plot and story arc that kind of goes throughout the and like drives the rest of the book after this point. Because once Mr. March falls ill and Mrs. March leaves, like a lot more of the chapters become intertwined, telling a, a more of the same story plot. Yeah, unified that's the I, word. I didn't notice that they were I mean of course once you said it I noticed but I didn't notice initially that they were all just separate short stories which makes sense because um Alcott was posting them in newspapers before the actual publication serialized yeah 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 it was serialized but I also think it's interesting too because like they're children in this in these first 15 chapters and then we start to see them become more adults especially once we hit part two, which we're not quite at yet, but we will be soon and we will be uh, going into there in our next episode, I think. Yeah, we'll, we definitely will. So like we, we get to see them become more adult. And I think that like when you're a child, the way memories work, like it is just kind of like pleasant little vignettes and everything kind of blends together. Speaking of though, who the fuck is the narrator of the story and why <laughs> can they not keep their like point of view consistent because sometimes the story is told in like third person omniscient and then sometimes the narrator just inserts themselves and is like i said something and you're like what the fuck i didn't even think you were there like who are you that's a really common i wonder if that's something i mean you've studied literature more than i have like in a more academic way but like that's something that happened a lot when we were in college and studying certain types of literature so i wonder if it's something that happens during the time period that it's written in. I've also the book that I'm reading right now, which we'll talk about in the end again, because I've been reading it for forever is not written at during this time period, but is very much modeled uh, about like modeled by books written in this time period and has a similar narrative structure where it's third person. And then all of a sudden, like you'll get a drop of eye. Yeah. I mean, I'm not saying it's unheard of. I will say that, you know, as somebody who has pretty extensively studied this period, it's usually done better, I guess. <laughs> I don't know. For me, it was just really obvious that, like, the narrator was kind of inconsistent, but, like, wasn't supposed to read as unreliable, I think. And a lot of the times, not all of the times in this time period, when that kind of switch happens, it's because the narrator is supposed to be unreliable and things like that. And you're supposed to kind of get the sense that they're not actually third person omniscient and question them. And I don't really think that's what's actually happening here. Like the narrator is, at least in the first 15 chapters, gives a pretty kind of impartial, if kind of judgmental sort of view. So maybe not third person omniscient, maybe more like third person close. Wow. Um. 
But on that note, excluding that weird scene that I don't remember, um, isn't it not implied that Alcott is Joe? And the narrator favors Joe? Like, I do think that maybe we are supposed to question the narrator a little bit. Because, yeah, so the March family was closely modeled on Alcott's family. Um, and Joe is kind of like Alcott. Like, that is her... Interesting. Her character a little bit. Even though they had different life paths. Very interesting. To a certain extent. According to, according to PBS. Cool. So, yeah, I do think that it is a little bit of an unreliable narrator in that the narrator definitely favors Joe more and is sometimes nicer to her. And as I was saying with Amy, I think the narrator, and maybe it was just my perspective with my life experience, was a little bit meaner to Amy during these first first 15 chapters, at least. Yeah, I I think the narrator was frustrated with how precocious Amy is, for sure. (laughs) For sure. Yeah. All right. I will continue looking for that scene. And if I find it, I will link it in the description for everybody to also marvel at. Um, What are you reading, Harmony? Or actually, do we want to start with homework? Oh, yeah. Okay. Do we have homework for this one? Oh, I'm going to. I'm going to be a good little woman and um, clean my house. No, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to vacuum my rug. Every other day, because that shit gets really dirty and it makes me so mad. And somebody else in my household does not vacuum um, the rug, at least. So <laughs> that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to vacuum my rug every other day like a good, proper little woman. Is that good enough homework? <laughs> sure, let's go with that. <laughs> What's your homework, Maggie? I think I'd like to try and take after Joe a little bit. I've been trying to get back into writing. Uh, For those of you who don't know, in college, I was a really active creative writer. I think Harmony would attest to this. I wrote wrote quite a lot, actually, especially poetry. And since I moved to Washington and went to grad school, that has all... Grad school beat the creativity out of me. And I have been attempting to get back into it a little bit more. So I think I'm going to try and channel Joe a little bit and try and just, like, churn something out, even if I don't like it or think it's very good I think it's worthwhile to just like get back into the practice of it because I think that one thing that Joe does really well is that she doesn't assume anything she creates is good off the bat like she continually goes back and revises and like doesn't get discouraged so I think I need to take a page out of that book with my own creative practices and just like do it and do it and do it until it's finally good yes I think that's a really as someone who like writes for a living um (laughs) not that I'm an expert or anything because I'm not, but like that is a very good that that sounds yes good 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 yeah I was just, <laughs> I was in practice in college and now I'm not anymore and I'm like frustrated at my inability to like write like I used to when I was writing all the time you know yeah I understand that I I definitely get that I've suffered with the same sort of thing before real. Okay, um, what are you reading, Max? I'm reading two things. I'm reading Ship of Magic by Robin Hobb, which I feel like I've been talking about Robin Hobb for the past billion episodes because I've just, like, marathoned this series by her and then moved immediately on to another series. And then I'm actually- Robin's a lady? What? Robin's a lady? Yeah, she lives actually what? She lives actually in Washington, not very far from where I live, so she's a local writer. That's really cool. And then the other thing I'm reading is a reread, actually, which I don't do very often, but it's just, like, one of my favorite, like, 
escapist series. I was thinking of it as a guilty pleasure series, but I don't like that concept, and I'm trying not to think about it as being guilty pleasure. It's just something I like to escape into. So I'm reading The Shadow of Night, which is book two of the All Souls trilogy by Deborah Harkness. Yay! I'm reading the same book I was before in all of these other episodes, Jonathan Strange and Mr. Norrell. Um, it's great. I like listen to my witchy playlist while I read it, and I drink tea with honeysuckle in it, and I feel like I'm a fae person. <laughs> That's awesome. I actually found my copy of that book. I'm still, y'all, I moved like two months ago and I'm still unpacking all of my books. The struggle <laughs> is real. But I just came across my copy of that book and I like put it really high on the books that I want to read next because you have been inspiring me to finally like read it because I haven't read it before. I've just owned it for a oh, while. Oh, really? It's a good book. Um, It's problematic for 2005, which is when it was published. I don't know why, but it's still a good book. Even though I think it's maybe because it's modeled after the time period in which it's written in. I, uh, I yeah, I've heard that it's it. One of the things it does really well is that it actually does like exemplify the time period. It's like good historical fiction in that sense. Like it actually represents what it was talking about. Yes. Yes. All right. Next week we will be reading pages or chapters, chapters fifteen to thirty of Little Woman. And um, no, actually, that's that's wrong. Next week, next week, we're going to read Anne of Green Gables. Oh, yeah, you're right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Next week, we're talking about Anne of Green Gables. And then the week after that, we will be doing Little Woman again. And it will be chapters 15 to 30. So that's what you all have to work, look forward to. Next episode is going to be a little bit less um, about the story of Anne of Green Gables and more about the character. Yeah, we're bringing a friend who identifies very much with Anne. So it will be super fun. (laughs) All right. Yes. Goodbye. 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 You can follow us at Rebel Girls Book Club on Instagram, at Rebel Girls Book Club on Facebook, at Rebel Girls Book One on Twitter, and you can email us at rebelgirlsbookclub at gmail.com. Our theme song is called Pretty Boys Make Me Feel Ugly, and it's by The Gays. See you soon, and remember to read rebelliously.